Welcome to the Get to Vet podcast, where we bridge the knowledge gaps in the military transition process so you can focus on what's ahead. Hey, Get to Vet listeners, this is Mike. And now for my personal disclaimer, although I am active duty military, I'm not an official spokesperson of the United States Navy. Any of my views expressed on the Get to Vet podcast are based on my personal experience. Thanks for listening. Hey there, Get to Vet. Trevor Maxwell here and with me as always on this beautiful sunny day here in Virginia. The short time active duty, uh, Mike Riggs with the yep, 25, yep. 24 days left in the, or 20, no, 34 days left. Sorry. 34. 34. By the time this releases, we'll be, this one should come out on uh, September 27th, give or take. Yeah. And that will be single digits for me. And our next episode after that, I'm really looking forward to because Mike's not active duty anymore. Oh, (laughs) yes. No disclaimer. (laughs) We're going to have a special episode just for that. So let Mike get out of it. So hey, uh, our guest today, uh, Albert Bellamy, uh, he's the Marine who smiles at spreadsheets. Uh, I came across, you know, we connected on LinkedIn and I saw that headline and I was like, oh, I got to look at that because I love spreadsheets too, uh, working in financial services. And I kind of looked at some of the stuff he was doing and I was like, yeah, I want to have him come on the podcast too. So Albert, introduce yourself. Hey guys, uh, so yeah, we didn't do much uh, pre-chat before the show, but Mike, I also have exactly 34 days left in uh, in uniform, metaphorically. I probably only spend one or two of those days actually putting on the tree suit. But uh, yeah, so uh, I'm retiring also on September 30th. Um, going to a Guns N' Roses concert the night before that, just to celebrate. So I'm going uh, to Chris Stapleton. Awesome, yeah, both probably going to rock pretty good, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'm in uh, North Carolina. My my final resting place in the Marine Corps was Camp Lejeune, as luck would have it. Uh, it's the first time I've ever been stationed here. So, uh, but it's a great place to kind of finish raising my kids. I have two in high school and one just started college this past week. Um, so, and, and yeah, like the like the headline says, I'm the Marine that smiles at spreadsheets. I'm aware there are a handful of other Marines that don't hate math and technology. Uh, but uh, it was a line that got a laugh a few times during uh, four block sessions. So uh, I decided to stick with it. I always like to have a little full humor in my LinkedIn headline. Um, I- I'm retiring, get- getting up towards 24 years of service, but we'll never quite get to that 24 year mark. That'd be in January. Um, and along the way, I was a, uh, I-, I enlisted as a logistician. So I did maintenance management. So lots of, uh, coded reports and, and all sorts of uh, translating stuff that nobody else could understand for good reason because it was just all gobbledygook. But uh, I did that for about nine years and I crossed over to the shiny side. And uh, at the time there was some wars going on. So I said, all right, let me get a piece of that. And, um, and I signed up to be an artillery officer. Um, and that was an adventure. It, uh, I didn't get probably quite as much of the, uh, the shooting action as I initially intended, but it all kind of worked out for the best. I I got my deployments here and there. Um, In between, they kept pulling me back to logistics and I kept kind of coming back to number crunching and and just decided that that was where my heart lay. And that was at the time, a few years back, I intended to 
pivot that way in my military career. So I signed up to uh, for a program that would have taken me to Naval Postgraduate School, but I did a, a distance learning program. Um, and that was in operations research and systems analysis. And so by the time I completed that, the Marine Corps requires a kind of a one-for-one -one payback for distance learning. So it was a two-year program to get my master's degree. And then I, had, I owed two years on the back end. So that two years was spent down here at Camp Lejeune uh, as a battalion executive officer. And then uh, that experience for reasons we don't need to get into here kind of led me to, it's probably time for me to hang up my spurs. And so then I had the, the, the challenge that, hey, this master's degree that I got, that I really loved the study, that I intended to turn into billets in the military, now I've got to figure out where it fits in the civilian side. Um, and so I was kind of left with the, uh, at one point, a little over a year ago, I was sitting here Googling what is data science um, and, and what do you do with an analytics degree? And so that led me on this year-long journey of branding and networking and, and all that good stuff. And so that's been kind of the, the story of the last year of my military career. Well, I, I love the personal branding stuff. Like that's, you know, I've kind of realized, yeah. especially in my line of work and financial services like that to me, I was like, I wish I would have started focusing on that at the beginning, but um, right. that, isn't that what everybody says though? It's yeah. You know, it's, it's like I started a year out, which is pretty good compared to plenty of other service members that I've seen. But, you know, if you did it for a year, you're like, oh, man, if I'd done it for two years, I would have been really set up for success. Yeah. So funny story. Um, you know, Mike and I uh, here in a couple of weeks are heading to Florida to talk to some mm -hmm. some folks who are getting ready to retire out of the military and, and spend a couple of days with them. And one of them was my was one of my guys from my last uh, my last platoon I was on before I retired. Uh, you know, I was talking to him on the phone the other day. He goes, well, I'm going to go look at this thing. I want to start a business. He's like, I, I know it's a long ways out. And I'm like, how far out? He's like a little over a year. And I was like, you probably should have started that two years ago, honestly. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> especially if that's going to be your meal ticket day one yeah. of uh, retirement. Hell yeah. Well, that's the thing is he's not even retiring. He's getting out at 12 years. Oh, yeah. And I was like, yeah. And you no pension. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, that's what kept me afloat working in financial services through that as uh, one of our previous podcast guests called it the three-year desert um, was the fact that I had that pension and VA disability. I had some rental properties too. Um, okay. So, you know, passive income helps a lot. Yeah. It, it wasn't, uh, I didn't really notice it that much, uh, <laughs> but you know, had I not had that stuff, there's no way I would still, I would be doing contract work or something like that, or doing like a GS job if I didn't have that. So yeah, that's, especially if you're going in the entrepreneurial route, if you can start a few years out, uh, you're probably doing yourself a lot more service than you, than you might think. So yeah. Cause you've got the dual concern of not only, not only do you need to brand yourself, but you've got to brand that company. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, and that can be two separate efforts, depending on what business you're going into. Yeah. And well, well, not only that, here's the other thing that's, that's tough with entrepreneurship. And you get to that point where you have to be able to pull yourself out of like the actual business operations, right? You can't 
work on your business while you're working in your business. And it's tough because, you know, if it's like a, you know, your passion project, there, there's very few things where you can continue to work in like the nitty gritty little detail stuff and still be able to run the business and take care of all those things like the, you know, now most of my, what I do is personal branding, marketing, reach out, you know, creating new content to, you know, reach that audience. Cause it's like, yeah, if you don't bring new business in, you're, you're dead in the water. Yeah, it's hard to hard to supervise a working party while you're filling sandbags yourself. Yeah, and and uh, you know that's the thing is a lot of vets don't understand because they feel like you have that that while you're in the military, like oh, why is that guy not doing anything? Well, he's supervising. Yeah, yeah. that looks really hard. Um, and his job's harder, and yeah, <laughs> and his punishment is greater if the if the mission fails. It may not even be his fault. Yeah, and and. Yeah, you don't realize that until you are that guy. It's like, oh, this sucks. I'd rather just have a shovel. That's easy. <laughs> right. I don't think that's as prevalent in the civilian world. Uh, you oh. know, I think people understand that. It's like, yeah, this is the person who, who, who's bringing in all the the new stuff. And so, um, you know, I know you're you've already you've already got work lined up now, right? After you've transitioned out. I do actually. I, I wound up with. Uh, way more work than I could handle on um, I'm having to kind of cut back. I already had to turn down a couple of job offers. Oh, that's rough. Good spot to yeah. be in. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it actually just kind of all, uh, I, I had a few irons in the fire and was, was talking to a couple of recruiters and I had some stuff that uh, with some military contractors, not, not GS jobs, but, um, you know, contracting companies still working on Camp Lejeune with some efforts with the Marine Corps in analytics. Um, and then I had, you know, some things that I've been working on for a while with uh, some civilian companies and some things that just sort of popped up at the last second. And they all, I, I said yes to a kind of a part-time teaching position that just sounded real interesting and, you know, would help develop my skills. Um, and it was yeah, it was like 10 hours a week working. Um, so while I was still working on the full-time jobs and trying to pick between, basically wound up being about four uh, potential offers, uh, I said yes to the part-time job. And then all four of those full-time jobs offered, you know, in some form, I got three firm offers and one that was was kind of soft. I would have had to kind of lean forward into it to, to really get, get a number. But um, yeah, I got three firm job offers in one week and it was a tough choice because they were all three really good jobs. So what, uh, what was it that led you to where, to the position that you actually took? I, I felt like, so one of the job offers would have been a real stretch. Um, and it, it just in hearing it, I was not super qualified for the job. Um, they just really needed someone right away. And it was something that involved the security clearance and, you know, just with the job description and who that person was going to have to deal with on the military side, it, they were looking for a field grade officer, maybe a, a super savvy Sergeant major could have done it if, with the right technical skills, but, you know, really they probably, probably needed a major or a Lieutenant Colonel retiring to do that job. So super small, talent pool that they're drawing from. And I was probably the only one there that, 
that he was even close to the qualifications at the time. Um, the problem for me was it felt like it would have been a bit of a panic trying to do the job. Um, that the, the gaps in my technical skill set would kind of weigh heavily on me. And I'd be scrambling to try and fill those as best I could rather than, you know, really learning those skills well. The job that I eventually took was actually paid a little bit less than that, than that one. And of the three firm offers I got, it was the lowest salary, not by much, but still. Um, but it, I felt like it was the best learning opportunity for me. Um, and I, I just really want to keep learning and keep developing in the job. And everything that were telling me was, this is going to give you tons of opportunity for advancement, for learning, for developing those technical skills that you're lacking. And it's just like, well, that, that fits where I am right now better than the other jobs. That's interesting because, you know, we talk to a lot of uh, people, too, that, um, you know, there's tons of jobs out there that do require like some pretty hardcore technical skills. A lot of, um, you know, I see a lot of people that are getting out of the military, you know, go to jobs that maybe aren't necessarily as, as in-depth technically, but, you know, kind of all those other things, those, uh, as, as one of our other guests, Harrison Bernstein calls them, the, the high human skills, right? Yeah. Um, like, yeah, you can show up to a place on time and, and you know, whatever and, uh, and be there. So I, I see people get a lot of opportunities, excuse me, uh, because of that. But um, yeah, this is this like data analytics. I know that's a, a really popular thing now, especially just with more tech, uh, a lot of stuff becoming more tech centric. And so as far as like getting, getting some of those uh, skills, how did you go about that? I know you had to, you get the master's degree, but you know, one of the things that I'm a big fan of too is, um, you know, certifications that are out there. So what, in your opinion, are, are some of the better um, things to have in order to get a job doing that type of work? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, the, the kind of the sexy thing now is soft skills and, I think people are realizing that you can get in somewhere as long as you don't, I would say if you're terrible at math, like just genetically, like, you know, like flunked out of high school math or, or did like the, the bare minimum, you're going to struggle. Um, you have to have some, some mathematical mindset and some ability to absorb statistics. Having, having some actual college statistics classes is, is kind of a big thing. But beyond that, like people get wrapped around the axle about, I need a data science master's degree to the tune of, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 um, or, or more. I mean, if you're going like Wake Forest or something like that, you'd probably get yourself for 75 or hundred grand to get in that thing. But most of that is just, if you, if you have a mathematical mindset to where just you look at numbers and letters with some algebra and, and whatnot, and it makes sense to you. You look at a graph and it makes sense to you and you can put a graph together. Um, if you just have that kind of level of mathematical, statistical, spatial relation mindset, the more important thing is that you have soft skills. And so, you know, just like what Harrison talked about, you show up on time, you're presentable, you know, you're dressed for the occasion. You don't, you don't stumble over yourself when you get up and speak in front of 10, 15, 20 people. Um, and all of these are things that in the Marine Corps, and I think in, you know, most places in the DOD, we teach to the lowest PFC and Lions Corporal, like, hey, 
uh, we're sitting here for half an hour. You stand up and give a class on customs and courtesies or close order drill or marksmanship, something. Um, and it's just instilled from day one that, hey, you better be able to, to stand up and speak and have some confidence. So, and that's just not instilled in most places in the civilian sector. Certainly most uh, college degrees are not, they're not gonna require a public speaking class or those classes are not gonna require you to give uh, oral arguments or um, you know, stand-up presentations. It's mostly electronic or, or written now. So um, but those are becoming rarer and rarer skills. Leadership, just, just being able to take four lanes corporals and go fill sandbags and meet a timeline and a mission. Uh, but those are rare skills out there. And so just having that combined with the mindset and really the mindset, like I said, once you get beyond basic math, basic statistics, the mindset is uh, just curiosity. I mean, can you look at a problem set and say, all right, what else? Like, how can we solve this? What else do we need to know? What pieces of information do I not have that I have to go find? So all of that is the more important part than the certification. The certification thing in analytics and, and data science, the kind of you know, higher, more scientific, uh, less kind of squishy uh, processes, the certification is, is a tough nut to crack right now because there's no, there's no kind of industry recognized standard for that. We don't have a, a CPA exam or a bar exam or, or anything like that that is required to call yourself a data analyst. You really just, you know, if you, if you analyze, if you're doing some projects and you've done some online classes, put it in your LinkedIn headline and, and run with it if you can get someone to hire you. Um, the one that I'm that, that is kind of the new hotness right now is the Google Data Analytics Certificate, and I'm have have finished all of the academic work on that. There's at the end there is an optional project to do, which I harp on people endlessly on LinkedIn, like do the project because that's what kind of separates the the wheat from the chaff when it comes to analysts. Is can you take a problem set? and see it through to its logical conclusion and propose a solution. Um, and that involves finding, you know, using your technical means to find solutions to something and then being able to present it in a coherent fashion. And the, the Google Data Analytics Cert takes you through all of those steps, how to ask questions, how to, um, how to kind of refine your data set, how to analyze it, how to present it, and then follow on actions. The weird thing about it is it's optional to do the project at the end. Um, so that's why I see a lot of people on LinkedIn saying, look at my certificate, I, I finished. Um, and then my immediate question to them is, did you, um, you know, where, where's your proof of learning? <laughs> uh, so yeah, technically you met the requirements that Google and Coursera put on the thing, but you've got to demonstrate uh, that you can accomplish something. And really the project that they lay out for you is it's kind of paint by numbers. Um, if, if you want to do it that way, it's, it's very kind of boot up this program, pull this data set in, do this analysis on it. And you're just kind of following along unless you take the initiative and, and take a, a few steps farther. Yeah. That's in, I know uh, my older brother was, was looking at that, the, the data, yeah. data analytics one. And I don't, I mean, I don't know really what's encompassed in it, but he was, I was like, how's it going? He's like, um, he's like, I feel like I need to 
uh, learn a more modern programming language. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that means, but. Uh, <laughs> so there's not to geek out on you too much, but the, the Google data analytics certificate uses a programming language called R, which is R is that there's a constant debate of which is a better language to use, to use for data analysts and data scientists, R or Python. Um, the funny thing is R is actually the newer language. Uh, so you, your brother may not know that. R is specifically designed for statistical analysis and presentation uh, in graphs. Python is a more general programming language that also excels at uh, statistical analysis, data analytics, that sort of thing. Um, the kind of more, more hardcore data scientists, they're using like machine learning and uh, natural language processing and all these kind of uber nerdy uh, concepts. They swear by Python for the most part. The ones that, that want to keep it a little, little simpler and are doing more customer facing stuff, by and large, they generally prefer R. So, and there, there were many sad faces amongst the more like the data science community, but also data analytics when Google chose to teach R in that course. So sounds like he's, he's one that wishes it had Python. Yeah. Well, go study Python. That, that kind of brings up another uh, interesting kind of a, a more of a broader spectrum type topic because, mm. you know, I, I think I can be critical of, of, academia as a lot of people mm -hmm. in the military can be versus like the actual market whatever you know when you're dealing with consumers versus because you know I, I I think a lot of the times people in the academic realm you know they operate mostly in theory versus you know for me like when I'm running a business um, <laughs> you know I'm like hey I this is what I care about uh, yeah you know, I care about like, you know, what, what actually works in business. So yeah, I, I think that's a kind of an interesting thing there. Uh, you know, looking at what the academics like versus like, Hey, what are the people who are actually doing the work on the ground prefer? So, yeah. Are you old enough to remember a Rodney Dangerfield movie called back to school? Oh yeah. That's one. I actually, it's funny you mentioned that I watched yeah. it like three weeks ago. I tried to get yeah. the boys, the boys to watch it with me, but classic but it just reminded me of that scene where he's got the old fuddy-duddy kind of tweed jacket bow tie wearing business professor who's spouting all this theory that doesn't work and yeah. and he starts shouting at him about you know if you don't grease the palms of the local mob boss then you're you know you're not going to get your garbage taken out of all this real yeah. world so. what did he say you're going to pour concrete then the teamsters are going to have yeah, a the teamsters want to talk to you yeah <laughs> Yeah, it, it's funny. Like, there's a lot of, uh, I, I, you know, I, this is me coming from the MBA dropout to go pursue something that was actually more relevant to me. I think we had one one instructor. He was actually the CEO of a, uh, I think it was a Fortune 500 company, maybe Fortune 1000, whatever. But he's like, yeah, I was the CEO of this company for like you know, eight years. And he's like, and I just got sick of it. He's like, I made a lot of money. So I was like, I'm just, I want to go teach. And he's like, there's very few people like me out there that, that, that there's tons of them that have the capacity. It's just very few of them that have the, the willingness to come back and, and teach this stuff. Yeah. And every one of his lectures, 
he would say, well, you know, the book will tell you this, but you know, really he's like contradicting or contradicting the curriculum, like yeah. every chance he gets. So I just, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So yeah, those are the best, but yeah. And so I see you had some, uh, you know, you had some interesting internships too. Um, I know, I, I know you did the one at, with Google. Uh, there was another one that I really wanted to talk to you about because I think it's a, a really cool, um, um, what do you call it? Resource for, for transitioning vets. You did the vets to industry thing. And, yeah. uh, you know, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that, who they are and what they do. Yeah. So um, I started, I don't remember how I got referred onto vets to industry, but it was about a year ago when I was just sort of had made my decision to retire and I was just thirsty for assets. You know, I was like, Hey, let me absorb all the knowledge I can find about transition. And it started with um, USO transitions and doing uh, Mike Quinn's LinkedIn webinars, which was what kind of gave me the, the passion and drive for developing the network on LinkedIn. And so I, I just took to that very quickly. And then through that, I started meeting people that said, have you heard of Vets to Industry? Have you heard of 50 Strong? Have you heard of Four Block? And all of these, I wound up actually getting to, just like with the jobs now, I got into more than I could actually handle because I still had a full-time job that was just overwhelming. And, you know, being a battalion executive officer during COVID-19 and trying to sort out all of that garbage was uh, was a nightmare. But um, yeah, so I would just kind of take breaks during the day and like, okay, 50 Strong's coming on and I, I'd go do their, their webinar real quick. But um, yeah, Vets to Industry was great because it was, um, it was on Saturday. So it's like, hey, I'm, I'm not at work at least. And it's really a fantastic asset for um, just getting to know the things that are available out there to veterans because they're just constantly bringing in speakers and companies and, and all these things that you just, you never hear of otherwise. Um, you know, if you don't sleepwalk through your transition seminars, then maybe you hear about a couple of them, but you know, you, you don't, I don't think you grasp what onward to opportunity is unless, you know, Vets Industry brought in the, the head honcho of Onward's Opportunity and one of the deans at Syracuse to talk about that whole program. We talked for an hour and, you know, I'm just sitting there frantically taking notes. So they have that aspect and then they have the breakout rooms where you just, you just meet people. You meet people that have transitioned or are transitioning. And every time you go to one of those things, I mean, you get you've got a hundred more connections on LinkedIn and the danger with LinkedIn is getting those open connections where you don't, you don't know the person, you don't talk to them. Maybe you don't have anything in common. They just saw like you, your face popped up on people you might know and they click connect. Well, that's useless. But what's useful is you go to a vets to industry event or you go to USO transitions event and you meet people, you talk to them, you've got something in common. You're, veterans in some stage of transition or military spouse and you talk to them for five ten minutes uh give them your elevator pitch and you know you got something in common and then you click connect that's a person you're going to remember you've associated a face to a name to a touch point so that i think is the the big advantage of vets to industry is you're going to learn a ton about assets and programs that are there for veterans and you're just going to meet so many people that 
um, you, you know, someone there is going to have an, a level of expertise in the field that you're going into. Um, and, and that's just fantastic. Um, my particular thing with Vets Industry is they just started a data analytics team. And so uh, Brian Arrington put out an all call to anybody in his networks, like, hey, if you're into data analytics, come on down. Um, so I think we've got, the last count, we've got like 15 people that are working the data analytics problems that he has, um, trying to get some insights and, and put together some products that he can take to uh, potential donors and show the kind of impact that the program is having. That's pretty, and so, you know, I think one of the good things about that, when you, not only are you kind of going out and networking and meeting people, but you're also getting something else that a lot of uh, transitioning service members don't have when they get out, you're getting experience in something other than the military. Uh, even yeah. if you're just volunteering with a nonprofit, guess what? That's work experience, right? You can oh, yeah. use that as, um, as kind of, cause a lot of guys get out and they're like, well, I haven't done anything except this. You're like, you know how many EOD techs are like, well, yeah, all I've ever done is jump out of planes and blow shit up. Right. It's, yeah, man, there's, there's no civilian artillery. Yeah, so they don't need cannoneers out there. Yeah, so that's that's where, like, for for guys like Mike and I, and and even you, because you know, you have to look at like what else is out there. How do I leverage those? Like, as Harrison calls them, you know, he he called me out on the the pod because I said soft skills, and he's like, nope, nope, we don't call them that. We call them high human skills. Is like, okay, let, learn how to. <laughs> he he leveraged that he was like he's like yeah that's what that's what you should leverage and it sounds like you did good because you you've got a pretty good following on linkedin too i do yeah i i um i think i just seized on branding kind of naturally and i was i was sort of building the plane as i flew it and as i was going to more of mike quinn's webinars he used to do a few different ones um, and that now I think he just does the one kind of cornerstone program. And then if you want the, the advanced knowledge, you got to use your cool bucks and, and take his digital networking program, but, um, which I hear is fantastic. So plug for yeah. Mike there, but, um, he used to do three different webinars. He would do one on like mastering LinkedIn and they would do one on producing content and one on, I think one was like entirely on branding and or branding and networking. And so. I really love that the branding networking class he used to do because that just made sense to me. And it was, and, and I started doing what we call AB testing and just figuring out like, Hey, does this kind of content work Do people like when you write up a bunch of stuff and then you attach multiple pictures to it, does that work? Do people click on that and resonate with that? Um, how hard do you have to work on that opening line to catch people's attention? you know, like emojis, do you use these things? You know, stuff that just sounds kind of silly when you say it out loud, but I mean, that's the difference between the, the proverbial tree falling in the forest and something that's, that resonates enough to get rebroadcast. Because uh, the thing with LinkedIn is, you know, you've got, you've got an hour to catch people's attention. And if you fail in that hour, then nobody ever sees it, it just dies. Uh, yeah. So and I, th I think Mike referred to it as the golden hour once, but uh, that's a bit yeah. more of it. But um, yeah, it's just, you've got an hour to, to, to get as many eyeballs on it as you can. And then that dictates whether or not anybody else sees it. 
And so I see people out there that kind of aren't paying attention to that or have never been taught that. And they're just putting out content, content, content. Every day they're putting something out and they're like, oh, why don't, why don't people like my content? Like, well, because you don't, you don't pay attention to what resonates and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a good lesson just for life. Like anywhere you go, everybody's a salesman. Anywhere you go, you're going to have to sell something to somebody. Um, even as an analytics geek, you know, for me, like putting together graphs, those graphs are for somebody. And I've got to stand up there and say, hey, this, this bell curve means this. Um, and and that's, that's selling information or trying to convince somebody that my conclusions are correct and they should you know, take, take business option A, vice B. And so I think I got a couple of tangents there, but anyway, it's, um, you know, you just, if, if you're not paying attention to your audience, um, that, then you're going to fail. And, you know, the thing with LinkedIn is if you're not paying attention to audience, then you won't have an audience. And so I think I, I kind of picked up on that instinctively because I just have this need for attention and approval. And so when I would put something out that landed, with a thud and nobody saw it and it didn't get rebroadcast. It was like, well, I'm never doing that again because that was a waste of time. Um, and so you just naturally gravitate towards, well, people want to see this sort of thing. Um, and it's not clickbait because it's all stuff that, that matters to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, every once in a while you toss some kind of red meat to the, the vet audience when you just start talking about things that you remember from your military career. So I think one time I, I started talking about how a big turning point for me in the Marine Corps was corporal's course. And I just attached like a big picture of the red corporal chevrons and, and just talked about what that meant to me. And that, that was a big hit. And then, you know, I talked about my original job as a maintenance manager um, when I was enlisted and just talked about that. It's like, Hey, this is not a sexy job, but here are all the things that it taught me. Um, you know, where, where my 0411 is at, and that's the, the code for maintenance management. Um, and that resonated hugely. So stuff like that, it's like, you know, some people kind of dismiss it as, as clickbait, but it's like, you know, I'm talking about things that I remember and that I want to take note of and say, here's what I learned. And then other people dovetail off of that and, and talk about it. So it becomes a big hit. Um, but then just, just through that, I mean, you, you acquire followers and connections and, you know, um, I used to kind of alternate veteran content with data analytics content, not consciously. I've never put together a schedule like, you know, it's going to be analytics on Monday and, and vet bro stuff on Tuesday, but um, just kind of, you know, I'll kind of look back at the things that I've posted and I'm like, okay, I've been a bit heavy on the, the veteran transition content lately. What am I doing in analytics right now that I can talk about? Um, some of it's super simple. It's like, I watched this YouTube video. It was great. Here's why. Um, you, you all should go watch it too. Um, read this book last week and, you know, here's what I think about it. So that stuff's usually a big hit because people just want recommendations for things. Yeah. Seeing up to date on current events. That's, uh, yeah. you know, Mike and I kind of took a, a hiatus from putting out podcast episodes here in August mm-hmm. and um, I've been writing new content. I've been writing all kinds of awesome. stuff. I, you know, I, and it's, it's weird. Cause you know, if you use different platforms, I was like, you know what, I want to try out Twitter and, and see how that works. Right. So what did I do over the last month? I've been writing, you know, th- there's formulas for all that, but you go in and look at it and 
okay, I'm, I'm writing 20 or 30 tweets a day. Well, guess what? I have like 600. (laughs) When you do that for three weeks straight, like, you know, it takes me like an hour or two, maybe. Um, But you know, now I can take that stuff and, and turn it into LinkedIn posts. Cause I've been like, you were, you were saying like, just this one thing I post a lot about, you know, the things that I do, which, you know, the, the selling thing, right. I, I know like that's, yeah. that's what I do as a financial advisor, but I guess my perspective on that has changed a little bit to where I look at like, Hey, I'm, I'm solving problems that exist out there. And hopefully the content that I'm creating resonates with people. And they see that and then they want to chat with me. And, you know, if it's yeah. a good fit, awesome. If not, no big deal. But I was like, you, you know, I'm kind of sick of just having the same stuff all the time. I, I want to branch out, right? So I'm going to take all those tweets and I'm going to take those and copy them and say, hey, I'm going to turn this into a LinkedIn post too. I want to yeah. use, you know, obviously there's a big difference between uh, what's good on Twitter and what's good on LinkedIn. But uh, oh, yeah. You know, for me, that's nice to sit down and just take that time to do that kind of create that content creation because I enjoy it. I like writing. It's it's a way of kind of, you know, being creative and, and getting to express that. But, you know, the big thing is, is that's like when when you put something out and it resonates with people, you're like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Right. That's a good feeling to know that you can. All do right. It. So, oh, it's, it's like crack. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous. That that feedback loop, you're just sitting there like, oh, I'm getting more views. I'm getting yeah. more likes. I'm getting, yeah. <laughs> so uh, my wife has to tell me to get off LinkedIn uh, quite often. <laughs> I'll, I'll get a bit ridiculous with it. So I think, so I start work next week. So uh, I think once I've got an actual full-time job to, to occupy my time, you'll see my LinkedIn content is going to decline precipitously, but. Yeah, I feel you. What's it? So, as far as like your transition, you and Mike are are same date. Yep. You know, so how long ago did you did you actually know that you were going to punch out? So I I actually had the thing planned out pretty well before. I had a good kind of decision tree going from right about the time I decided to come out to Campbell June. Um, so I was finishing my degree and I was looking forward and. I, you know, I had various plans that I put my degree to work in the military, you know, in this branch of the tree. Um, I could kind of bail on it and go for, you know, see if I could go for battalion command on this. So there, there were a bunch of different branches on it. And I always had in the back of my mind, hey, my, my payback tour is up this September. It's, you know, two years since I graduated college. And, um, you know, that's the earliest I could, I could retire. And yeah, just... 2020 and the you know the stuff that was happening just with with the career with the billet I was in with what I was looking at in the future it just made sense to retire because you know I'm 45 and once you get to your mid 40s you start looking at it's like okay well if I start pushing forward into like the 50s um, then you you're starting to get into territory where people don't want to hire you so unless you're going to you know, go straight into a GS job or contract or start your own business at, at a certain point it's not necessarily ageism. It's just a bad bet to, to hire you for a civilian job. So, um, and, and, you know, you start looking at, you know, how old do I want to be starting a second career? Um, and, and, and how limited will my options be at that point? 
So just a ton of different things that I wanted to keep my kids in high school here. And I was looking at potentially a deployment this year, if I was still sticking around or, um, orders out, uh, selection for promotion potentially this year. And then that, that implies orders next year. My two, two of my kids are midway through high school and I, I just wasn't going to do that to them. So it was, yeah, it was last August, September. And so I put in my papers a year out. Uh, I think it was, I think it was October 1st of last year. I fi actually filed them. So. You feel like you had enough time to, to get everything done the right way or were you kind of, you know, running I, around like everything was on fire? I do. Um, I've run around like with my hair on fire lately because they, I think it's kind of a, I would say it's a dirty little secret. It's, it's a thing that nobody explains to you about Skillbridge is there's like 200 different flavors of Skillbridge. Um, you, most people kind of go through their whole career thinking Skillbridge is just, you know, troops to pipe fitters and, um, you know, a couple of kind of college guy things. And it's just, you just get put on rails and then that's your job when you get out. Um, and that there's a set schedule for it. The, the hidden secret is there's really no set schedule for it. You're kind of at the mercy of whatever program you get into and whether or not that fits with your transition schedule. And if it doesn't, well, tough. Um, so I did Hiring Our Heroes, the corporate fellowship program, and got on with Google, which was not a get on rails and, and work at Google afterwards, which was exactly what I wanted um, for, for kind of reasons organic to to Google and how they're doing business. But um, yeah, so the, the thing that I didn't realize until it was a little too late was, hey, this completely screwed up my, like the administrative part of my transition. So that by the time I got back and got into actually checking out and doing the stuff I needed to do, it was like, well, you're, you're past your cutoff date. I knew I was past the cutoff date to do the VA claim early, um, which I'm not, I don't need much from the VA claim, lucky enough. Um, but that and like putting in for terminal leave, like I was, I was past the date to put in for terminal leave. So I'm kind of in the in a weird space where I got to put in for annual leave and and sell some back, and which is fine, it, it works out. But yeah, the skill bridge took me up like right almost until my separation point where I had to run around and do things a, a little crazy. Totally worth it. Recommend skill bridge. I actually turned down a skill bridge that would have taken me past my EAS, which would have been a real uh, dumpster fire. But yeah, it's, um, it, I think that needs to be advertised a little better to people. And it feels like even the, the avenues that are advertising skill bridge and talking about it, don't talk about that, that, Hey, your, your skill bridge opportunity and your transition are that they don't communicate. And so it's up to you to figure out how they fit together and to get all your stuff done. Um, and I did a lot of stuff kind of past time or past when I should have done it. Um, and things are getting a little messy here at the end, but I'm going to get everything done, but it's, but that's the tough part about it. I feel you. I came, I came back from my last deployment and I had four months left. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's tough sledding. Turned my team over, took care of my my team, and the command was nice enough to leave me alone for the last three months. I had to yeah. I squeeze in a, a one week trip down there to Lejeune to go to uh, Intrepid Spirit to kind of get all my stuff 
um, you know, make sure everything was documented. I didn't meet the, the deadline for BDD either, but um, yeah, uh, same thing. I, you know, one thing that you were talking about there at Skillbridge that I was, you know, surprised me like that program has becoming uh, increasingly popular. Uh, in the last episode we did, we interviewed the guy who's in charge of like the retirement programs for the, for the army, not like, like for the actual entire army. And, you know, he kind of talked a little bit about the background with that and why that program came to be. And I was thinking like, you know, it's funny because I'm sure when that thing first came out, all the leadership elements were, were, you know, educated on, on what it is and, and how to use it. But I feel like now there's there's so many people out there, especially leadership, the people who need to know about it that don't um, that don't really know. I almost feel like, you know, it should be in the, you know, the commanding officers course or it's like, hey, here's this thing. It's it's here's what they call it. Right. Here's what just to give them the like, oh, yeah, okay, I remember somebody talking to me about that because I was on a call with a guy. Uh, very he's a navy 06 and he's getting ready to retire you know i was like what about skill bridge he goes what's that and i was like you've you mean you've never heard of this and he's like no (laughs) yeah so yeah Yeah, no no kidding a year ago i thought it was it was you know troops to truckers and airstream renewables and stuff for eas inglands corporals and I, ha- I actually was lucky enough. I had a lieutenant who only worked for the battalion for like th- three, four months before he went on his uh, corporate fellowship. And when he brought the paperwork to me to sign, I'm like, what is this? You know, tell me about this program. And then I happened to be talking to a buddy who had gone through a similar master's program that I had that had gotten out a few years before. And he said something about it and he said, oh yeah, I found out about this. I did my transition readiness like five months out from separation. And he's like, suddenly I found out about this program, had no idea it existed until it was way too late for me to do it. And he's like, I was kicking myself. And, you know, that was a dude I, I trusted. The lieutenant seemed to have his stuff together. So I said, all right, so um, let me look into this. So learn yeah, from, from my uh, Intel officer. Cause he was doing his. From, that was same for us. That lieutenant was our, was our ST. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he's doing his through the McChrystal group. Okay. And, uh, he told me all about it and I'm, and I'm like, uh, I've never even heard of this. Well, what is this thing? And yeah. I learned about it. It was, uh, probably October of, uh, 2020 when I learned about it. And And that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that should be like you you as a command master chief, like that's, that's right up in your wheelhouse. Like why, why aren't they teaching people about those programs? And that goes back to the point that I made the last recording we did is like, Hey, you, you have to own this stuff. Right. I, I, I even called myself out. I had that attitude when I was still active duty, like, Oh, this person needs to do their job and, and take care of this and this for me. And, and, you know, my attitude has completely flipped now. I'm like, Hey, I, yeah. I'm in that, like, Hey, I need to make sure that I own this, right. <laughs> this is my transition. I have to make sure personally that, that my chain of command knows about this stuff. And, and communicate that stuff early and often 
that's yeah. that's one that I know a lot of people. Well, I know. think we do a terrible job of of briefing it to senior staff NCOs and officers. Um, the the young Marines all know about it. It seems like, and I'm sure that's the same in other services. But the the thing the, the problem that exists with it, and I've had like strident debates with people about this is you can lead a, a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And, you know, the requirement is there for Marines to do their transition readiness seminar one year out um, and commands get punished for violating that and, and for not providing time for the Marine to go. The problem that we run into 80, 90% of the time is the Marine finds an excuse not to go where they say, well, I have to go on this field exercise, or I have to, you know, or blah, blah, or I, you know, got sick or forgot to go, you know, there's just a, whatever laundry list of excuses, but it's the command sets up time. The Marine just doesn't show and, or they just don't say anything about it until there's six months left. Um, so, and there's only so much handholding you can do with them. So they know the, the requirement and if they choose you know, through their own actions, not to go until it's too late. Yeah, that's bad on the command for not, you know, kind of leading them by the hand and taking them there. But, you know, if you're talking about someone that's completed a four-year enlistment satisfactorily to the most extent, um, you know, and they're 22 years old, at that point, it's like, you're making a big boy or big girl decision to get out of the Marine Corps. Um, do you really need me to, to, you know, lead you by the hand and make sure you get to your, your transition stuff, you know, you're, you're getting to the point where nobody's going to hold you by the hand to do anything here pretty soon. So, yeah. um, I, I think it's, it, it may be a bit of a cynical way to look at it, but it's kind of natural selection at one point. It's like you, you snooze, you lose. And if you don't take care of your transition, well, uh, you're going to learn some tough lessons here real soon. Yeah. Completely agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's going to care about the the success of your transition more than you so but that's you know a, a thing that i talk about is like people who are in the military active duty i think when people are transitioning they kind of get a better idea but you don't really know we always use the term big boy rule hey guys we're on big boy rules here right I realized I didn't understand. I didn't really understand what that meant until after I had gotten out. Right. <laughs> Cause there's no more safety net. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that service doesn't care. Like five minutes after you walk out the door, it's like, all right, you got your plaque, you got your, uh, you know, you've, you've selected your whatever medical insurance and, and life insurance you want. Yeah. Adios. We'll see you. Yeah. No, that's the other thing that a lot of people kid themselves. They, they want to work up until, you know, the 12th hour and I'm thinking that they're so important in that organization. And the fact of the matter is, is that those organizations have been around for well over, in most cases, especially our organizations over well over 200 years. So they're going to keep doing just fine without us. So don't kid yourself, take care of what you got to do, um, do the proper exit and, and they'll continue the, the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, Coast Guard, they're going to, they'll continue uh, preserving freedom and protecting the American way just fine without us. So, yeah. So I, I started as battalion executive officer, like basically January 1st of 2020. And I started investing time and I, I'm asked slaved away, 
we're talking 16 hours at the a day at the desk. Um, and coming in Saturdays sometimes just to, to get done what couldn't be done during the week, acting battalion commander a handful of different times for you know weeks or months at a time. It was September, October when I really started investing progressively more time in transition. I'm talking about just, just working on LinkedIn, upgrading my resume and my profile, um, you know, going on mock interviews, look, watching webinars, that sort of thing. And I had a lot of guilt associated with that, that, you know, cause I could see it's like, Hey, this is, this is something, this is a project that I was taking care of a couple of months ago that now I don't have time for. Um, and it was nothing that was going to cause the battalion to fail, but it was just, you know, good things to do that weren't getting done. Um, and, and yeah, I, I wrestled with that for a while. And I worked, so that was, let's say October, so three months. And then, yeah, up until first, first or second week of April, I uh, was still, so you're talking six months that I was devoting more and more time to transition and less and less time to being a good XO and certainly to, to preparing a transition for the guy that was coming after me. Um, and at, at this point, you know, I look back at it and say, okay, well, uh, they wrote me up for a nice medal for my, my time as XO. I could have slaved away until the last day and I would have got that same medal. They weren't, they weren't going to bump it up one or down one. Um, I got a lovely plaque, uh, beautiful, you know, ribbons, medals, all my ranks, like love it. You know, it's sitting in front of my, uh, on my dresser at home. Um, I, I would have got the same plaque if I had done a better job and, and continued to slave 16 hours a day at the desk as a battalion XO, nothing would have been any different. I set up the next XO for success. I could have done a couple of projects a little better for him that would have helped him out a little bit more, but his job was going to suck regardless. And, you know, still sucks now. I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible, thankless, awful job. You get no glory and all of the beatings. Um, and, and there was nothing I could have done was going to change that. That's what so I've always heard from those you. incremental things that I could have done that I felt bad about, you know, in the end run meant almost nothing. That's what I've always heard from officers being OPSO and XO or like the, but yeah, no, I feel you. It's you made me think of my uh, retirement award there that, you know, I came back and they were like, Hey, you need to write up your retirement award and, and send it to us. And, um, a lot of people shake their head or, you know, look at me like this, but I wrote myself up for a NAM Navy achievement medal for my retirement. Yeah. You know, as a senior chief, normally they say, well, this should be a calm. And I'm like, honestly, like, I don't care about the medal because nobody's going to look at that. Like I've, yeah. yeah, I just thought it was funny because, you know, 20 years in the Navy, uh, bronze stars, purple heart comms out the rear end. And I didn't have a NAM. I didn't have a Navy achievement medal. Oh yeah. So yeah, you got to fill in all the, all the blocks. So it was funny. It like at the, the award ceremony, you had me uh, senior chief retiring, you know, just like years of combat deployments under my belt. And then the junior guy on my team who was transferring to go be a dive school instructor. Hmm. Um, we both got NAMS and, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> just me being a goofball you know they're like hey speech everybody and so i was like well it's great to be able to feel like i finally achieved something <laughs> <laughs> nicely done but it was funny when i sent the award up i had to go explain to my exo he's like yeah this should be a con and i'm like no i wrote it up as a nam and he's like why and i'm like what does it matter? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm making life easier for it. you guys. And I was like, I don't have a NAM. Yeah. And I'm trying to enhance the feng shui of my, uh, yeah. My stack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I thought it was funny, but yeah, you're right. It's, you know, you can work yourself to death and, you know, really it's, it's those guys will, will pick up the slack and, and carry on where you left off. So right. I so, do want to say one thing. thing yeah, go ahead. Uh, and it's a little bit of a little bit of a sea story. And I was thinking about when you said you're an artillery officer. I was in Djibouti in 2004, 2005, and I was out supporting. I think it was a 26 mu on a gun shoot on a range, and and they had the um, mortars out. And I'd never been on that end of the mortar. You know, EOD guys were always on the you know the dud fired end. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd never been when they're out there shooting them, and I'm like holy shit these things are loud and nothing like the movies right and you think as a ud guy you're like oh you know i know a lot about explosives i know you know i know quite a bit but i had never been around a mortar when they're firing them and i'm like oh my god those things are loud and watching the moon dust go across the floor because it's an old seabed and of course Djibouti, you have all the moon dust and everything and watching the shockwave depend on how many of the increments they put on there. I mean, those things were, and the great thing was like the 53s dropped them off. It seemed to be like a mile away and they mm-hmm. made them hop them over to the firing line where they were, <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. And then me and my buddy are like, Hey man, uh, once you load some of them up in the truck and I think the gunny's like, hell no, they're going to hop all that shit over here to the line. We we're trying to help them out. But, uh, but then, you know, I'm in Habania, Fallujah. And of course, you know, Trevor and I have been around a lot of explosions. I've been way too close to explosions. But holy shit, the 155. Now that thing is loud. And yes. that is that is one of the loudest. I mean, it is the loudest gun I've ever been around. Of course, battleships were being phased out, I will say, because I've been in the Navy that long. They were being phased out when I was when I was coming in the Navy. but And I never got to hear a 16 be fired but mm-hmm. man 155s especially shooting i think the willie pete rounds or whatever mm-hmm. holy cow those things are just ridiculously loud so hats off to you guys shooting those freaking things because man especially over and over and over again because i just you know we would go to nsw you know working with seals and we'd shoot the freaking carl gustavs and they'd only let us shoot, I think, if you shoot a loom rounds, it's like two. And then you they say you can't shoot anymore because it starts mm-hmm. to tear, like, your heart muscles away or whatever the heck it is. It rocks. Uh, yeah, it, it tears you up. So, and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I can't imagine those dudes around those 155s and how it really jacks them up. But, yeah, hats off. Oh, yeah, to I think I'm going to get a mild concussion from RSOing a, a Gustav range with the Japanese once. Um, and I, you know, I came out to visit him on the range and he's kind of sitting off to the side. I'm like, guns, what's up? And he's like, sir, I can't. He's like, I gotta, I gotta get away from the firing line a little bit. And I could see that it kind of, you know, you see the spirals in his eyes, like, 
oh, this ain't good. And, and that's when he started telling me, like, as the RSO, should you not have been tracking that maybe you should not be up here, like, right next to these? Anyway. Oh, yeah, that's the worst spot to be the spotter on a, yeah. on a Gustav. You're, it's like being the spotter on a 50 cal. No way. And then you like you we'd have on the line on on rocket days out there then SW, you'd have laws, AT4s, and you have Gustav, and you'd look at the the backblast area on a on a law is like, nah, okay, AT4, eh, a little bit. And you look at the Gustav, it is scorched it's huge. freaking or earth. And then yeah, and they came up with uh like an adapter you could put on it so you could shoot it in confined spaces. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't know who the hell they got the volunteer to shoot that damn thing, but uh, not me, buddy. Not me. <laughs> Something yeah. else that's really fun is uh, being in gunfights with Afghanis that have RPGs because they're not familiar with the concept of backblast. <laughs> and uh, so I've gotten rocked a couple times with <laughs> with RPGs. Hey, inshallah, uh, man. Got Allah will do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I know it's. I feel you. So, Albert, if you could give uh, people listening to this podcast one piece of advice about their transition, what would it be? Yeah, I would say just, you know, take take care of your brand, your presence. Uh, And that, you know, too many of us just think that's resume and, you know, I'm super impressive in person. So get me into an interview and I'll do fine. Um, If you don't take care of your online presence, you may not ever see that interview. Um, and these days your resume just isn't enough. So I would say that all of the opportunities that I've been given or have earned, depending on your point of view, have, have come in some part from online presence, whether that's you know having a great LinkedIn profile or just going out and engaging and meeting people at networking events or, or online uh, or, or dealing going and doing podcasts and getting yourself on YouTube and just, just putting yourself out there for people to see. Uh, all of these things have fed into what looks like a successful transition for me. And I really think that they can work for just about anybody um, if they put some time and energy into it. Which is really a lot of getting out of your comfort zone for a lot of people too. Oh, yeah. And it takes uh, diligent effort to get after that. I mean, it's, it's something like for me, you know, and you as well, I'm sure, you know, when you walk into the conference rooms or walk in anywhere and you're wearing a uniform with, with the rank insignia and, you know, and, uh, uh, a badge that says you're <clears throat> mastery of D technician or whatever people recognize who you are immediately. Well, w- when you take all that off, it's completely different. And you basically yeah. are, establishing yourself blank and you have to learn to play that game completely different it's a completely different strategy and it's uncomfortable and it takes uh it takes a lot of work and and you got to keep at it you know and and the only way you're going to get better at it is to do it and if, if that brand is is in the room ahead of you and when you walk in people know who you are and that that's a positive thing for you um yeah, that's the, the battle is 90% won at that point. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Where's the, uh, Albert, where's the best place people can get a hold of you at? Um, they can, you know, like we said, get, get a hold of me on LinkedIn. Um, I, one, if I can give a second piece of advice, it's 
Uh, don't be afraid to connect with people on LinkedIn. Any people, doesn't matter if they have 20 followers or 20,000, uh, but recommend that you send a message. Tell them why you're interested. So I, I immediately connect with anyone that sends me a, you know, a message that's personal, um, and I immediately connect with any uh, veterans or uh, active duty or mill spouse. So yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn and let's talk. All right, guys. Albert Bellamy, the Marine who smiles at spreadsheets. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, Trevor, thanks. You too. Thanks for coming on. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Get to Vet podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and follow us on LinkedIn. If you'd like to come on the show, email us at Mike or Trevor at gettovet.net. That's get, the number two, vet.net. And let us help you get to vet.